workers' rights, nuclear disarmament, environmental justice, animal rights, as well as music and performance. From 11 p.m. Saturday, March 7 to midnight Sunday, March 8 on 3CR Digital, 8.55 a.m. and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Check the website for more details. Roasting the Patriarchy. Recipes for dismantling the system. Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio um, and it is 7am well, on a fine Friday morning. In fact, we've um, been, if we're giving a bit of a weather report here, we've actually had some very heavy rain um, in yeah, the past. about a month's worth at a night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, almost felt like it was flooding on, on um, Thursday morning. Um, but, yeah, um, before I guess I announce what's ha- coming up on the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present um, and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Um, so I'll get... I guess um, I'll announce what's coming up. So for this program, I think we have a bit of a special program. So we're going to be focusing on two of the big things um, that have been kind of happening in the ma- mainstream media. The first one is um, the U.S. elections, um, the U.S. Democratic primaries. Um, we were planning on getting um, Isaac Silver, who had been... Um, who has been a regular on our program, a U.S. correspondent, in terms of um, giving us the updates. He, he's an activist with the Democratic Socialists of America in the United States from Chicago. Um, but unfortunately, he wasn't available to do a live interview with us. But we do have the next best thing. Um, we do have a pre-recording um, that was done um, by an activist um, with Green Left, um, and this recording is an interview, a quite a long and detailed interview with Isaac Silver that we've um, split into two parts. Now, the only cave, caveat is that this was recorded before Super Tuesday happened. Very important um, to note. So, but the, all the content in the interview is still very much relevant. Um, we'll probably have our own sort of commentary about Super Tuesday sort of attached in between when we play um, the coin because we split the interview into two parts. Now, the next thing we have on later in the program, we're going to be interviewing um, uh, acti- activist and scientist Coral Winter, who is involved with Social Science and Green Left, about the coronavirus, which is sort of the, the next second big thing that is sort of dominating the kind of head waves. Um, but I guess I want to start off by talking about, you know, International Women's Day is coming up on um, the 8th of March. Um, and I guess one thing to kind of note about International Women's Day was International Women's Day is also known as International Working Women's Day. And in fact, it was actually 
International Women's Day has a very radical history. In fact, it was started essentially by um, by socialist activists, socialist women activists uh, and feminists. And, you know, um, there's all this sort of corporatization of um, International Women's Day where, you know, it sort of tries to dilute the kind of radical meaning. But fortunately, there was a fantastic rally um, yesterday, International Women's Day rally, um, which involved, um, which I think, um, even though it wasn't as big as previous years, um, it, it attracted well over 800 to 1,000 people. And in fact, there were lots of fantastic contingents of of women. Um, from there was a Indian um, contingent, a uh, Sudanese contingent, a very strong Latino contingent, um, and also all the trade unions and so on were all kind of politically kind of representative. Um, represented. So I'll. Maybe give it to Megan because we have an article from Green Left, um, yes. written by Sue Bolton, um, which talks about, which is a kind of article that's in the latest Green Left. Yeah, and um, unfortunately I wasn't able to get to um, the International Women's Day rally, which I was really looking forward to. I was still at work, which kind of brings me to the point of um, class issues are inextricably linked to uh, women's issues. So, you know, some of us work long hours, but then we also put in a whole bunch of hours in the home. You know, some of us look after uh, children, some of us look after elderly parents, um, but a lot of us uh, struggle with long work hours and then outside of work responsibility as well. So that class issue and that whole working women's international working women's day, I think is a really important thing to emphasize because women do take on the bulk of the unpaid work. Women do take on the bulk of work that is very poorly paid. So, you know, things like childcare and cleaning and all of these sorts of things, if they are paid, if they're in working industries, that, you know, those sorts of industries that are paid, uh, they're often not paid very much because that kind of work is devalued and it's seen as women's work. And it's part of the struggle, the wider struggle that we face as women. Um, you know, this devaluing of our work, this devaluing of our opinions, the devaluing of a whole bunch of things that are generally seen as a woman's uh, work or a woman's kind of realm. So, um, <clears throat> sorry, one of the things that... Um, you know, one of the things that is part of the struggle of women and, you know, we'd like to highlight this um, is domestic violence. And at this stage, I do want to um, say a content warning. So um, if this is going to be upsetting to you, we are going to be talking about domestic violence because it's a very, very important thing uh, to talk about, especially in the light of International Women's Day coming up um, uh, on this coming Saturday. Uh, so Sue Bolton has written a great article uh, in Green Left. And uh, the title of it is The Murder of Hannah Clark Shows What's Wrong with the System. Uh, the day after Rowan Baxter brutally incinerated his ex-partner Hannah Clark and their children, the detective in charge of the investigation, Mark Thompson, publicly queried whether the husband had been, in, and I quote, driven too far. He did this despite knowing that Clark had been dragged out of her burning car screaming, he's poured petrol on me. He would also have been aware that Baxter had given an account to the paramedics of what had just happened. Still, Thompson took it upon himself to share his unsubstantiated bias, uh, stating this is an issue of a woman suffering significant domestic violence and her and her children perishing. Is this an issue of a woman suffering significant domestic violence and her and her children perishing at the hands of the husband 
Or is it an instance of a husband being driven too far by issues that he's suffered by certain circumstances into committing acts of this form? Now, I just need to remind you that this is a detective talking here. Remember, member of the police department who's supposed to be investigating this issue. Now, the public outcry from his words um, that followed forced the Queensland Police Commissioner to stand him down after the uh, from the investigation. Um, and since then, men's, right act, men's rights activists, in particular One Nation Senator Pauline Hanson and anti-feminist Bettina Arndt, has uh, stepped in to defend Baxter and Thompson. Uh, Hanson told Channel 7 uh, on February 24th that men like Baxter are driven to this, to do these acts for one reason or another. She further trivialised the crime by stating that these things happen, in, in quotes. Aunt, who's also been quite vocal about this, uh, said that Baxter might have been driven too far and condemned what she described as the misplaced outrage of those demanding Thompson be stood down. So Bettina Arndt is renowned for her hatred of young women in particular. Um, she's had she's toured campuses uh, to tell students that young women are exaggerating the level of sexual harassment on campuses. In 2018, while speaking about a case of a pedophile teacher being jailed in 2011 for raping a 15-year-old student, Arndt says girls are exploiting their seductive powers to ruin the lives of men. That's classic. Uh, the fact that Aunt was awarded the Order of Australia in January for her so-called gender equity advocacy indicates how much purchase uh, the anti-woman brigade has on the establishment, um, though due to public pressure, moves to strip her of this award are underway, with the coalition backing Labor's Senate motion to this effect in February the 25th. Now, whilst Prime Minister Scott Morrison says he's shocked at the murders, he's not reconsidered the appointment of two misogynist MPs to the Family Law Review, so Liberal MP Kevin Andrews and Pauline Hanson herself. So Andrews is fiercely anti-abortion, and Hanson has a history of supporting the men's rights movements and trivialising um, anti-women violence. So left in charge, they'll see that it re- its recommendations jeopardise the safety of women and children. And Aunt and Hanson are femicide deniers. So like climate change deniers who refuse to acknowledge the science, these two deny that intentional killing of women is a growing problem that the government needs to address. They're so ideologically driven um, and committed to defending men against feminism that has gone too far that they trivialise and belittle those on the receiving end of grotesque violence. Their position is absurd and dangerous, and despite overwhelming evidence of the rise in lethal violence against women, these men's rights activists have friends in powerful places. So um, anti-domestic violence campaigner Rosie Batty is correct in saying that, and I quote, a loving parent never considers murder as ever being an option or a solution. Murder is a decision that is deliberate and driven by the need to exact revenge and achieve the ultimate act of power and control, end quote. The difficulty of tackling family violence is connected to the essential role of the family. So to privatise the raising of the next generation within the family system in which women have fewer rights than men. The patriarchal family system was only developed several thousand years ago, so primarily to transfer wealth from one generation to another within one family. And in this actual setup, women and children are considered possessions of the patriarch, and in many households, they still are. Um, while we may think our own particular family unit different, 
and capitalism has shown its ability to adapt to same-sex families, uh, women still undertake most of the unpaid labour, as I mentioned before, and they still take most responsibility for the care of young and older family members. So Sue's article um, basically gives you just a tiny glimpse into why um, women still have an absolutely long way to go in regards to the struggle. And I just want to also let you know that we have been trying to get uh, some domestic violence experts in here to have a discussion about this during the International Women's Day week. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to secure one, but we will still continue this because the dialogue will continue about this. Yeah, thank you very much, um, Megan. Um, now, I might play a quick um, announcement um, before introducing our pre-recording of our interview with um, Isaac Silver. The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival... February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio. It is 7.13am and we're going to be playing an interview with, um, that was recorded with Isaac Silver by, um, Alex Bainbridge, um, a member of Social Science and part of Green Left, um, which is going to be where they're going to be talking, having a bit of a discussion about the US Democratic primaries. More focus, this interview more focuses on um, the political dynamics um, of um, Bernie Sanders' campaign, um, because I guess one of the kind of um, things is the Bernie Sanders campaign basically poses a lot of questions um, for um, the radical left, um, and that's and there's a lot of kind of debates about the viability of his candidacy or whether socialists, especially revolutionary socialists, should support. Isaac Silver's campaign. So this is a interview, Bernie Sanders campaign. <laughs> uh, Bernie Sanders campaign. Sorry, uh, and this um, interview kind of goes into a bit of those discussions um, that have been kind of happening in the radical left. Um, once the first part of the interview is played, we'll just do a bit of a short kind of update on because this interview was recorded before Super Tuesday. Um, we'll just give a bit of an update, you know, following the Super Tuesday um, situation to give a bit more context. But I think, I hope um, listeners um, enjoy um, the interview, and I think it's, yeah, quite a good, um, yeah, interview. All right, so welcome everybody here today to, um, we're here with Isaac Silva, he's a socialist activist in Chicago in the United States, uh, supporting the Bernie Sanders campaign, and he's also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And we're here today, so welcome Isaac. We're, we're here today to discuss the Bernie Sanders campaign, and I guess the the things which are quite striking about it are, uh, I guess the place where I'd like to begin is the establishment maybe is beginning to shift their their tone, given that Bernie Sanders is now clearly in the front runner status, and there's more and more people beginning to think that he actually may win the nomination, or at least it seems more conceivable to some than it might have done previously. Um, but. Uh, but the establishment, I think it's very clear, has made a concerted effort to 
try and rub Bernie Sanders out of the media coverage, just write him off as a um, as a as a potential candidate. So can you just please can you just, can you talk about that to start off with? Like, what efforts has the establishment made uh, to try and you know not have Bernie Sanders uh, be the nominee? And and what what comments you have about that? Sure. So um, this uh, is just about the. Uh Maybe just under one year since Bernie Sanders announced his uh, his campaign for president. Um, uh, this was last spring that he began the second run, and that is compared to previous uh, presidential elections in the United States. That's an extraordinarily long time to be campaigning. Um, but even so, at that point there were already several other declared candidates. And so that was the first thing, is there, there was clearly sort of an approach of throwing every potential uh, Democratic Party presidential candidate at the wall to see if any of them would stick and who would um, emerge a, as a sort of anti-Bernie candidate. Uh, so at, at one point over the last summer, um, there were, I think, uh, over two dozen candidates. So you had everybody from... You know, former Vice President Joe Biden to senators to, um, you know, random uh, state Democratic Party politicians that basically nobody had ever heard of. And um, I think that that was a real uh, strategy that they, that they had of, of pushing forward all of these other candidates and encouraging them to run with the hope that it would suck up the air from his campaign and present, prevent him from developing any kind of momentum. Uh, and inertia leading into the primaries where we are now. And in fact, that spectacularly backfired and accomplished exactly the opposite thing, which is there was so much sort of noise from all of these other essentially interchangeable establishment candidates that there was a dynamic of every month or two, um, one candidate would emerge as, you know, p- people who nobody could even remember who they are anymore were, were positioned as the front runner, um, or or the potential backup front runner in case uh, Joe Biden's campaign um, uh, hit a road bump uh, all through the past year, and so there were all of these ups and downs. Then we finally got to the primaries uh, just over, um, no, just under a month ago, and the the dynamic of the past couple of months has been um, sort of a reckoning with that approach where, in fact, Bernie Sanders has demonstrated that he had a very solid, cohesive base of support. Uh, Unlike the other candidates who were sort of a flavor of the month, uh, interchangeable, quote-unquote, you know, the moderate or the centrist without any clear clear ideological uh, appeal or core to their campaign, uh, Sanders has, you know, an army of activists all over the country who are clear about why they're supporting him and ready to contribute uh, funding, contribute volunteer hours, uh, and now that we're in the primaries, get out the vote for him. So that reality really hit the establishment in the face uh, within the new year when um, he began to uh, pick up a lot of momentum in the polls. Uh, That momentum led into the first couple of primary elections in Iowa and New Hampshire where the Sanders campaign was far better organized um, 
than many of the, the competitors. Uh, and so where we are now is that he has won the popular vote in the first three contests, uh, which is, I believe, unprecedented in the, um, the history of, of presidential elections, not just for the Democratic Party, but for either party. Uh, so that that was one strategy. The other, as you mentioned, is just a full-on, similar to Corbyn in, um, in the U.K., the full-on media sort of alternating between either not mentioning uh, his existence or, you know, totally trashing one or another aspect of his politics or character or campaign, um, and it's really been all three of those. So for a long time, uh, you know, it's there were issues of his, his age. Of course, he suffered a heart attack in the fall, and that was the, the end of the campaign. Uh, there have been routine attacks on his base of supporters, caricaturing them as um, strictly, you know, uh, young white people. Uh, that was really held over from 2016 when that, that was a bit of a reality. Uh, and then we've seen recently sort of red-baiting attacks on his identification with the term socialism, uh, past and current comments he's made um, uh, positive about one or another aspect of, say, Cuba or the Soviet Union. Um, so there's been, you know, just a range of attacks that the establishment has had. And I guess also within the Democratic Party itself, like I think you would, there's all the questions about the rules uh, at the convention yes. and, and you know, I think there's... Would you not say it's fair to say that the Democratic Party establishment has, as much as anyone else, been trying all political stops against Bernie? Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. I think that the Democratic Party is structurally um, has structural barriers towards the participation of a left candidate. Uh, actually, one one reality this time compared to 2016 is there have, has been some modification of the primary rules as well as the convention rules. So, for example, uh, in Iowa, where he won. Uh, thousands more votes than the second place candidate. Um, uh, we know that this this time because there was actually a change of the rules to reveal what the popular vote total was, rather than this arcane a lot, uh, sort of algebra that assigns um, delegates to candidates. So although he got thousands more popular votes, and uh, possibly you know. It, it ended up that he gets fewer delegates because of the way that that happened. And so that sort of threw into question, well, now that we see that this time, perhaps it's always been the case that, that every time there's been an Iowa caucus in the past, nobody has really known what the popular vote was. Um, similarly, uh, with the convention itself, uh, all of these primaries are competing for allotment of national delegates to attend the Democratic convention uh, in uh, four or five months from now. And this is the first year in decades where there have not been, where there are, there's going to be a first round of voting just from delegates who are assigned from the popular vote without consideration of the so-called superdelegates, which were decisive last time. These are uh, elected officials, or basic, essentially party insiders of the Democratic Party who have a decisive weighted vote. Um, 
this time they will be prevented from voting except in the case of a candidate not reaching 50% of, of the vote. So even if Sanders gets a plurality of, uh, of voters, say 40%, and then the rest of the candidates are divided up with 10 to 15% each of delegates, that would then move to a second round of voting where hundreds of superdelegates would get to weigh in. And, uh, and we actually don't really know what, what will happen. That's sort of what everyone is, is wondering about now. At a recent debate, uh, not the most recent one, but last week there was a debate that ended with a question posed to all of the candidates. What would you do in case, in the case of one candidate getting a plurality but not a majority? And everyone but Sanders said, uh, fudging in one way or another, you know, I would go with, with uh, allowing the superdelegates to vote. So that makes it clear that uh, the, the absolute priority for Sanders supporters is trying to win 50% plus one of the delegates uh, at the convention this, this summer. Um, which remarkably actually seems possible that the, the campaign is, has a lot more uh, momentum and strength than I think anybody expected uh, just a few months ago. So, so yeah, there's there's all kinds of um, uh, structural barriers as well. That's correct. I guess the, the, the point I'm trying to get to is, uh, I guess to work out, what do you think is the extent of the challenge that Bernie Sanders represents to the establishment. I mean, my understanding is that Nancy Pelosi said just the other day that, oh, yes, she would be comfortable with um, with Bernie Sanders as the nominee. On the other hand, we have seen this huge campaign against him. Uh, uh, yeah, well, how do you see... Um, what, what would be the significance if, if Sanders is the nominee and or even the president? Yeah, so so this is this is uh, to be honest, this is a debate that's happening in the U.S. now. I think at all levels of society, within the left, uh, within the ruling class, within the media, um, kind of grappling with this question, which nobody had been prepared to think about, uh, especially because things are so much in motion, where week to week or even day to day, the chances of uh, that being a reality of Sanders winning the nomination, you know, fluctuates. Um, so everyone's sort of wondering what would happen. I think in many cases uh, there are multiple aspects of Sanders' campaign that are fundamentally hostile to um, the the leadership of the Democratic Party and the self-conception of the Democratic Party. First, he has rejected um, any source of funding other than his own grassroots base, of working-class contributors, um, and makes it clear that uh, you know that this is a principled stand against the influence of um, the capitalist class and, and and various elements of the ruling class in politics. Um, so, uh, and the sort of Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as well have set up their own independent uh, fundraising and campaigning apparatus that is, they're Democrats, but this is separate from the Democratic Party apparatus. So I think that that's one thing. Uh, the second is, obviously, his program is something which is uh, directly confrontational with some of the main 
uh, industries in the United States, primarily the healthcare industry, but also uh, fossil fuels, also the military-industrial complex. And he um, will sort of rattle this off as part of his standard sub, sub speech, saying this campaign aims to be the worst nightmare of the health insurance company, of the, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, of the, the fossil fuel companies, and um, and so forth. So it's uh, a class conflict sort of orientation rather than a class collaboration orientation. Um, and third, uh, alongside the fundraising thing, the, the, the sort of get-out-the-vote operation, the type of voters who the Sanders campaign is oriented to, the young workers, people of color, immigrants, um, and sort of directly contrasted the electoral, electoral participation of these sectors to uh, what has become the traditional Democratic Party orientation towards um, suburban uh, swing voters, so middle-class um, you know, voters who are, you know, might may vote Republican or Democrat from year to year. Um, that's really been uh, the centerpiece of kind of third way, so-called third way neoliberal Democratic Party electoral operations. So in contrast to that, the Sanders campaign had said, we're focusing on mobilizing people who traditionally do not vote as a entirely different electoral base and one that has intrinsically uh, confrontational posture towards uh, the kind of uh, economic interests that have run the Democratic Party. So, so I think that there is a huge contradiction there and a huge conflict there. And where it will go um, is is really is is uh, impossible to predict. And it's it's sort of I I could see there being multiple avenues that the people at the top might be cooking up. One would be obviously. Uh, if they're able to somehow stop him from getting the nomination and come up with a plan to put forward another person as the candidate without at the same time fracturing the base of the Democratic Party, that would perhaps be their ideal. That uh, seems tricky, if not impossible, to do at this point because of the amount of loyalty that Sanders has with voters. Uh, another option they have, which in my view... Um, the smarter elements in the ruling class may hope for is say, well, if it's inevitable that he does get the, the nomination and we're not able to um, stop that, uh, then maybe we'll let him run and uh, sort of pull a Corbin and uh, sabotage the campaign actively or passively through not supporting it. He'll lose. They could put forward the message, well, this is what happens when the left uh, is in the driver's seat, and that's why we need to go back to um, Clinton and the Obama-type candidates. Uh, and that's a lot of the messaging that some of the other... Um, that, that, that's that been a centerpiece of some of the establishment messaging in, the, in recent weeks is Sanders is too dangerous. Um, there's all of these uh, congressional... Candidates, uh, candidates for Senate and, and House of Representatives, who see a ticket with Sanders at the top is, is totally toxic to their chances for being reelected. So this is just going to be suicidal for the Democratic Party and for any opposition to Trump. Um, 
any opposition to the Senate and congressional Republicans. Uh, so those are some of the dynamics at play uh, as as far as how they will um, how things will uh, will will play out from here. Uh, it really remains to be seen, but but I think that those point to some of the key structural cracks in um, in in the Democratic Party here. So uh, it's it's a it's an interesting time because this is a far more ideologically clear uh, and politically clear um, crisis than there has been in in uh, either of the, of the major political parties in quite some time. So what is the mood among the socialist activists? Are people excited by this juncture? Yes, so everybody is, is totally excited. And I think that it has been... Um, it's been invigorating and uh, unifying in some some ways. I think that this is a a moment where activists from many different uh, kinds of campaigns that had been their own individual sectoral campaigns, whether around police violence or environmental issues or uh, immigrant rights, uh, the left wing of the labor movement. And, and so forth are all put into relationship with one another um, under the umbrella of the Sanders campaign. It's been something that has been uh, fairly unifying for um, the left. In one sense, there's been uh, there's been variations with that. One one uh, reality is that there are some segments of uh, you may say the social movement left that have um, endorsed uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, that's been a pretty small minority. Um, and then I think another tension within that overall uh, near consensus behind Sanders has been the degree to which um, you know, what type of independent posture or total absorption into the, um, into the campaign uh, the left should have uh, and you know, um, when, whether, and how to uh, critique some of his policies that uh, are at odds with the goals of the left and, and various campaigns uh, and so forth. So it's there. There is a, a strategic kind of uh, quandary that 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 we're in. Even though I think, on the whole, it has been uh, it's it's certainly very exciting. Uh, one other one other thing that's that's extremely inspiring is, especially contrasted with his last one, 2016, um, there is extremely strong and visible support um, from all types of uh, immigrant and refugee communities um, and uh, people of color generally. It's been um, something like a rainbow coalition uh, campaign that is quite promising and and that's different than was the case in 2016 uh, going back to what he said about the uh, you know to what extent uh, people should support him or I guess challenge the challenge his weaknesses I, I think uh, maybe we should address some of those weaknesses because um, you know historically you'd say one of the main vehicles for the ruling class in a situation like this is for is to, is to try and tame 
the left in government. Right. Um, so that's right. obviously, I mean, that's that's probably a few steps down the track for them. They, they probably try the other options you mentioned earlier, but um, there no doubt will be a whole lot of institutional ways they've got to try and tame him in government. And, and what are some of the, I guess, what are some of the the weaknesses that you might think would be fair criticisms of Sanders? What, what are some of the weaknesses or criticisms that one might make of Sanders? Oh, yeah, what, what, what would be some of the fair criticisms you could make of Sanders? Uh, what, well, well, for one, I think that he, um, while in context uh, of certainly the past several decades of mainstream candidates, he is far more anti-war and anti-intervention um, uh, he's not uh, what you know. It, there are some weaknesses there, you know. He, he he talks openly about you know at times there would be cause for the United States to intervene here or there, and he can play somewhat into um, the uh, nationalist um, kind of uh, politics. Uh, Rivalry between the United States and China and Russia, um, and so forth. Uh, I think another thing is, um, while the left, so for example, Democratic Socialists of America took a vote at our last convention that, in the case that Sanders does not get the nomination, we would not be supporting any other candidate running as a Democrat. Uh, he himself. Uh, openly pledges that he will, um, you know, even if it's the billionaire Mike Bloomberg or whoever else. Um, so although he is technically an independent, although he is he's openly critical of the Democratic Party establishment and the record of the Democratic Party, um, you know, he, he does sort of tie his own fate for some understandable reasons to the Democratic Party apparatus. I mean, it's, it's definitely the case that the type of resonance and breadth that his campaign has had is would it be extremely unlikely were he running a third party candidacy. So, you know, that's it's uh, it's a difficult question to grapple with. But that that is certainly something that many on the left would take issue with. Um, and then finally, of course, uh, while his self-identification as a socialist opens up tremendous uh, breathing room for the socialist left to talk about capitalism as a system, to um, put forward socialist solutions. When pressed on what he's talking about as socialism, it's a very mild um, version of you know some types of social democratic programs uh, that you might find in um, northern or western Europe. Uh, or even um, say, you know, well, I'm just uh, in the mold of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so it it both opens up possibilities for talking about socialism and then also in some frustrating ways can kind of redefine socialism as uh, liberalism plus uh, some expanded public um, programs and redistribution uh, taxes and things like that. Um, so, yeah, th th those those are all uh, aspects of reality. All right. Um, that was the first part of um, the interview with Isaac Silver. 
um, where he went, um, who is a member of the Democratic Socialist America in Chicago, um, going through some of the different sort of political aspects of Bernie Sanders' campaign, um, especially, you know, the questions of um, his limitations, um, how he's galvanising the kind of social movements kind of behind him. Now, the main thing with that interview, though, was it was, was recorded before Super Tuesday. And I guess to give a bit of commentary um, following Super Tuesday was... It was actually, in fact, quite a disappointing result um, for the burning campaign. Yes. Um, with, and it sort of preded, it was presedated by two uh, a number of factors. Um, the first factors was all the kind of moderate candidates had essentially pulled out, um, yeah, so which Pete is Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar. Um, and then Michael Bloomberg, then Michael Bloomberg but he, yeah. followed, um, he resigned yeah. after, Super, after Tuesday. Super Tuesday. Um, but all of them, importantly, all of them endorsed Biden. Yeah. So all the, basically all the kind of establishment Democrats put their full energy behind Biden, completely uncharismatic kind of figure. And so Biden mm. managed to get a good lead, um, winning most of the states that were up for grabs. Now, the positive thing is Bernie has won most of the, um, the share of delegates from California, which actually takes up, um, has the equivalent of delegates to up to three to four states, you would say, or two to three. Mm. Um, in fact, over 240, over 200, um, it's a, over 200 delegates are pretty much up for grabs in that particular seat. And Bernie made a huge, massive lead, which is actually a huge improvement, um, when he ran against Hillary Clinton. Mm. Um, Hillary Clinton actually won that um, particular um, re- region in the in the 2016 primary. So I think it's is- important to note in California, the Latino community really, really got behind Bernie, and I think that's one of the reasons why he w- he did really, really well there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the yeah one of the kind of aspects of Bernie Sanders' campaign is the still the high. Um, support from, you know, working class communities. And in fact, there is also interesting kind of contradiction with Joe Biden's campaign in that he does have a high um, support base for African Americans. And I don't, I would sort of like to make one sort of quick comment. I don't necessarily think it's the, it's the case of a section of voters kind of voting against their self-interest. I think it comes from the fact that um, the Democrats essentially are the party um, that co-ops every single social struggle. So the civil rights movement Mm. um, in the 1960s made massive gains um, for African-Americans and essentially the Democrats co-opted that. Um, And, you know, that co-option has still a strong impact on voters. Um, So there is this um, statistic that shows that a lot of um, older um, the old population of African Americans or overwhelmingly voted for Biden, whereas the young population or have overwhelmingly kind of backed, um, Sanders. Um, so there's, that is a sort of factor I think we, um, need to consider before going into sort of the line that, you know, voters are a dumb or silly kind of thing, um, which I think has been sort of a kind of mainstream kind of it's left. It's a non-nuanced argument that's um, destructive. And I think, yeah. And ultimately, Bernie's campaign is trying to, it is actually, it is actually a challenge to win people over, especially mm-hmm. voters, um, and it actually falls into the perils of electoral politics because, in a sense, the problem with Bernie's campaign is it's not it's it's a it's a, it's effective at terms of uniting um, social movements, but it's not necessarily strengthening the, the political power of these social movements. In fact, mm. only ca- so political campaigns and sh- class struggle can empower those campaigns. So that's sort of the mm. limitations of electoral politics in a sense that you have to 
appeal to a wide base of voters, which can actually include people that are not necessarily going to be on your side in terms of class-based politics. Mm. So, yeah, that's um, a bit of the update on Super Tuesday. Um, oh, just a, like a, two, a couple of really quick things. Um, uh, just in regards to Super Tuesday, firstly, there was a low young voter turnout, which really was to, de- to Bernie's detriment. But secondly, in Texas, they closed a lot of the polling booths that were predominantly in black and Latino communities. And in some instances, people waiting six or more hours to vote. And obviously, if you're a working person, you don't have that time to wait around. And so that would definitely de- be to his detriment and to working class people's detriment in that they couldn't vote in the primaries because mm-hmm. they could not yeah. get to these polling booths in time. Although this is also going to be a factor in the presidential elections. Oh, abs- it and always in fact, is. Probably yeah. one of, cause, yeah, realistically, one of the, 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 um, the elements of... Um, of the US election is and how undemocratic is, is yeah. rationally based on the base that the Democrats have generally. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be out of the question that the Democrats should be able to win every single presidential election. Um, but of course, particular sort of undemocratic things that the Democrats fully back, by the way, because mm. they're not they're not interested in reforming it because it would essentially threaten... Well, they're not interested in democracy, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> it would essentially threaten their position as one of the two pa- um, political powers of capital. Um, now, I'll just play a quick announcement, um, and then we'll move on to our second part of the interview with Isaac Silva, where we'll get to continue some of these questions. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, um, we're going to play um, the second part of the interview with Isaac Silva, um, which continues sort of the discussion um, that was sort of started. This will sort of go up to 8am and then we'll be starting the activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Yeah, I, I guess to me, I think, I mean, obviously, I think you and I are both looking at a, you know, at a revolutionary socialist uh, transformation being the only real solution we've got to the problems of capitalism. Uh, and I think that, yes. I think that, I think that is true. Um, nevertheless, at the same time, the fact of the Bernie Sanders campaign having made such a challenge to a lot of the mainstream capitalist ideas, I think that's a victory just in and of itself. Uh, even all the yes. moderate candidates are being forced to talk left. Um, that's all, that's yes. the response to to this campaign. Uh, but it doesn't. It does leave still open the question. Okay, for those of us who do see that there there is a need for a revolutionary transformation and not not simply just electing moderate socialists to government. Um, how would you say? I guess. Well, can you make some comments about how that relates to socialist activists today and the strategy for? Uh, in relation to the Bernie Sanders campaign? Yeah, so I think that there, there's both there's both a, an, an ideological and a material aspect to that. In other words, uh, there's, there's a question of the ideas and the, the, 
program that he's putting forward as well as the an aspect of what are the social forces that have united behind the Sanders campaign. So I think that um, the second of those is is really important and something that has been uh, really good about this this campaign is is in fact his slogan, "Not me, us," uh, and that's part of his standard stump speech. He will say, "You know, even if, even when I get elected and I'm in the White House, that will not deliver any of what I'm talking about unless there is a mass movement of millions of working people." Um, now, what he's talking with when. when when he defines what that mass movement will look like, it tends to be primarily electoral um, and saying, well, we need to turn out the vote here and there and knock out the establishment Democrats and, and Republicans. Um, but I think that, that that message does resonate with people, and it is something that is about putting the working class into motion, about uniting and putting the working class into motion. So, uh, so on the whole, I think that this is somewhat of a gamble for the revolutionary left or, or those who see um, a certain kind of path towards socialist transformation as requiring not just a break with the Democratic Party, but you know a break with the capitalist state apparatus altogether. Um, for, for me, I think that the reason that's a gamble worth taking is looking at uh, where we were at the starting, the starting point, you know, over the past decade or a couple of decades, uh, where in fact there has not been a powerful working class movement that is sort of getting sucked up and absorbed into the Democratic Party and directed in electoral uh, reformist directions. But instead, I think that this campaign has had the impact of generating and kind of animating what could become such a movement. So I think that the context is extremely important and that this isn't, you know, the end point, but this is hopefully the, the beginning point of something that will play out in the coming um, years, decade, generation, perhaps. So uh, that's that's what I say. And, and, and it's been a it's been a fact. For example, with the rise of DSA, um, I think a lot of that story had to do with the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign and. I see this campaign having many strengths relative to that one in terms of the layers of the working class that it has mobilized. And so I think that on balance, this is going to mean uh, positive things for the potential of having a uh, you know, socialist movement in the U.S. rooted in the working class. Okay. Well, let's, uh, is there anything else that you want to add before we finish up? Um, let's see. Yeah. Um, well, I can't. I can't really think of any. I, you know, the, the the funny thing about this campaign is, for so long, I, sort of returning to where I was at the beginning, uh, campaigns are are longer and longer in the U.S. And so there was this, like, months and months where everybody was debating, you know, the character of the Sanders campaign. And now it's like the wheel has hit the road and every week there's another another primary which um, both uh, because of the sort of horse race narrative that happens around elections they can be you know I think that the media amplifies um, 
you know, who has momentum, this or that. But there is sort of a reality as well, as well of uh, you know the the election in South Carolina um, is coming up in a, a few days here, and depending on how well that goes for Joe Biden um, relative to Sanders, uh, I think it's likely that that Biden could win. Um, it's possible that Sanders could win. If Biden wins with a very strong result, um, then that could change the dynamic over the coming month. If, if it's a, he just squeaks by, if, if he wins, period, it's going to be totally, you know, there will be a floodlight kind of attention on that by the media who will then be pushing Biden, you know, as the presumptive uh, main Sanders challenger. But but basically a lot is, uh, a, lot, a lot's still up in the air. No, depending on which day you're, you're talking about things because of how quickly um, the pace of the elections goes. Um, that will likely come to a, the, the unexpected strength that Sanders has had in the first um, few primaries over the past month means that most likely by mid-March um, there will be much greater clarity about Know, about what's going to happen. Um, there's a huge chunk of states that's going to be voting uh, a week from now, and and that'll really set the course. And then and then a few more over over March is going to sort of clinch it. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if that was really. <laughs> well, I mean, it still it still actually raises the question though, because I mean. Even if even if um, Sanders does very well on Super Tuesday and it sort of becomes clear that he is going to win the plurality of the votes at least, plurality of delegates at least, uh, that still doesn't answer the question: Will the other candidates kind of recognise that, or will they sort of fight on till the bitter end to try to, um, you know, try to sort of get a basically anybody but Sanders type result? Um, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, uh, it's it still leaves like these open questions too. And then the other question is if if Sanders rocks up at the at the convention with the plurality of the votes, but not a not a majority, um, and then the establishment, uh, uh, what's the word? You know, rejects him as candidate. Uh, yeah. Then that will surely open up a big debate, both in the Sanders campaign and in society at large about. Um, you know about what does that mean, and I'm mean, sure that's a that's a, a a more than plausible scenario. I've heard some people right. say this will be the you know the death of the Democratic Party if they do that. Um, like you, you almost wonder how many how many times has the Democratic Party died? Um, right. Yeah, I, I think that the in the question of of when and how to. Um, into the Democratic Party is, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that a total disastrous collapse of the Democratic Party uh, in the absence of some clear plan and infrastructure for an alternative would be possible. You know, I'm in favor of um, rela- replacing or superseding the Democratic Party with a real uh Challenger, a, a real working class um, elect party that's that's both electoral but also does other kinds of campaigns. Um, exactly how to go about doing that is is a uh, is something that 
is increasingly clear that the left has not thought seriously about um, in quite some time because the, the question has never been posed other than as an abstraction. So, you know, we have sort of experience in a track record with, um, say, the, the Ralph Nader campaign in 2000, which politicized many people, including myself, um, but the, uh, the sort of social weight of that campaign was, was minuscule compared to um, what's going on now. Um, and it didn't actually pose the question of breaking up the Democratic Party, separating its working class base from um, its its funding and decision making apparatus, uh, or those kind of things. So, um, I, I think that that's another open question. Is is we say, you know, there's sort of a formula of well, the working class needs a party of its own, um, and I agree with that. Uh, then when we think about okay, what what specifically, other than like having a different name and not having any rich people calling the shots, like what would such a party look like? What would it you know, how would it be structured? What types of activities would it do? How would we how would we govern our you know how would we run our own party? Um, those are really important questions, and unfortunately, um, I think that there's not clear answers to them right now. So. Uh, well, I, mean, I think yeah, it's, a, a lot. it's very clear with these kinds of things. It's one thing to sort of to put the goal down as a as a algebraic formula of what we want. It's a completely different yes. thing to mobilise the social forces that can make it possible. And yes. I think that's actually one of the exciting things about the Bernie Sanders campaign is that it is actually opening up new possibilities. Whatever whatever criticisms you can make and whatever uh, limitations there are, I'm not saying that they, they don't yes. exist. From, from this distance, it does seem like the Bernie Sanders campaign has put new possibilities onto the table that weren't there before, and that's yes. that's the that's the thing which is which is most important potentially, or at least yes. that, that creates a potential. Yeah, I, I mean another another thing that is that's quite interesting now that we're seeing the actual voting uh, strength that he, that he has in different sectors. It's um, the way that that the vote is polarized uh, generationally and and racially within and, and, and in terms of income and educational attainment, which are the best you know demographic metrics we have as a stand-in for class, it's you know although some of his um, vote total percentages in the contests have been relatively narrow, those are delivered with um, you know. Supermajority votes from uh, Latinos, from young people, from people making under fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, and, and and so forth. So, and you know, these this is like a really strong, cohesive, rock solid uh, base of support that is exactly within the the kind of social and economic sectors, and generationally as well. I mean, that's that's sort of the most important thing is that it's it's recognized by. Um, by, by Bernie and by the establishment and the media and everybody that everybody under 35 years old is, you know, essentially a Bernie Sanders supporter or one one step removed from that. So their calculation of, you know, how do you put this back in the bag uh, counts on like, well, there's, <laughs> there's this whole generation that's completely polarized against, the, you know, the, the leadership of their party. So... Um, 
that's going to continue playing out in the coming years. Well, no doubt there will be um, <laughs> uh, different challenges and new things to work out as we go along, and um, I'm sure that the, the main job at the moment is actually to win as much as possible in this sort of yes. in this next uh, period and try and actually secure the nomination. Now, I'd like to thank you yes. very much for joining us today. To make a particular plug, that if you're able to become a Green F supporter, it's one of the most important ways that you can actually uh, make a difference to our project. So please consider that. And thanks, Isaac, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Alex. All right. Take care. No worries, you do. Bye. Thanks. All right. Um, that was um, Isaac Silva, um, the second part of the interview, going through all the sort of different political aspects of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, and I guess to give a bit more, um, so a bit more commentary, just a bit, um, bit of updates is um, another kind of um, debate that has been kind of happening about um, um, Bernie Sanders' campaign, especially in terms of um, the vote, um, is. Uh, Essentially, um, there has been a bit of an accusation that um, the other sort of um, can, uh, other, well, I don't really consider her that much of a progressive, but she is sort of has the um, the reputation of being so. Elizabeth Warren um, has been sort of there's been an argument put out there that she has essentially split the the progressive vote and taken a lot of votes away from Bernie Sanders, and that she should pull out of the race. Interestingly enough, as of two hours ago, she has essentially pulled out of the presidential race, um, but she has sort of not elected to endorse any candidate, which is potentially a bit of a cop-out because you just don't... um, There is actually probably potentially a lot of deal-making going on between the Democrats right now, especially on the question of who is going to be Joe Biden's president, um, vice president, um, because essentially one of the things about being a presidential candidate is that if you get elected, you essentially get to handpick your um, president, a prop vice president, I mean, and there's all this sort of dealing and wheeling um, between the Democrats because it's a total, you know, undemocratic party of the capitalists and the rich. Um, so, yeah, and then there's another sort of another factor is um, is just reading some of the analysis of the Democratic primaries is essentially... Um, Bernie Sanders will have to get more than 60% of delegates. Um, otherwise, super delegates will be able to sort of overturn um, his campaign at the uh, Democratic Convention. Um, so that's, yeah, just something to be aware of. Now, um, we're getting on to um, the Green Left um, activist calendar. Um, and I guess I'll start by the first event that we have coming up is um, there's a film screening, Pinkwashing Exposed. Um, countries like Israel promote themselves as gay-friendly to divert attention from terrible human rights violations, in this case diverting attention from the brutal colonisation of Palestine, and that is happening at 33 Saxon Street in Brunswick. There's not a time for that, so maybe check Facebook. Yeah, so yeah, go check Facebook. I think it'll probably be at 6pm. Um, now, the next um, event um, just coming up, just, just got to load up Facebook Um because this is not printed on the activist calendar now. Um, basically, there is going to be... Oh, yeah, our presenter, our very own presenter, Zane, um, his band, When the Tur- Our Turn Comes, is going to have its EP launch at the Cafe Gummo tomorrow, 
on Saturday the 7th of March at Cafe Gummo. Go resign. Go when our turn comes. And um, the next thing is, that's going to be happening is there's going to be a protest at 1pm um, at the State Library Sunday the 9th of March at Melbourne No to Backdoor Government in Malaysia and it's organised by the Malaysian sort of progressives. Um, basically it's a solidarity protest with what's happening in Malaysia with a backdoor coup. Um, then there's going to be a vigil at 1.30pm on Federation Square on Sunday, which is, um, about, uh, it's a vigil for the, for, for Delhi, um, against, um, for, um, all the victims of, um, the Modi government and the sort of rising Hindu, um, fascism that's currently happening in India, which is quite, um, terrifying at the moment. And it's happening, and that's going to be, uh, that vigil is going to be happening at 1.30pm at the Federation Square. Alright, the next event is gonna be, um, there's gonna be a film screening, um, The Triangle Wars, um, the story of the battle waged between local governments, big business and in the community over the development of a tiny sliver of crown land on the foreshore of St Kilda. And they'll be happening at 7pm at the Kino Cinemas. And that's on Tuesday 10th of March. Yep, Tuesday 10th of March. I'll leave Megan to announce the next events. Yeah, sure. Uh, Wednesday, March the 11th, Forum, Capitalism Has Failed the Climate. What is what is the alternative? We need to move a soci- to a society that p- puts human needs first and that ceases to commodify people, animals and in the, in the environment to generate billions for a select few. And that's at 6.30 with a meal from 6pm, a vegan meal. And that's at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanston Street in the city. That's opposite the... Um, RMIT, and that's organised by Socialist Alliance. On Friday, March the 13th, there's a rally, student uh, climate strike, and that's at and that's a uni students for climate justice, and that's at 1pm at the State Library, which is 328 Swanston Street in the city. There's also a march against Murdoch, a climate truth now, and that's at 5pm at the Treasury Gardens, also on Friday, March the 13th. On Saturday, March the 14th, Moreland Climate Fair, 10am to 2pm, at the Bouldering Wall in Wilson's Avenue in Brunswick. So that's all about uh, climate stuff in the Moreland area. Uh, Happy Art Hour, also on Saturday, March the 14th. An Ode to Frida Kahlo, and that's at 12 noon at the Community Arts Centre, 45 Moreland Street in Footscray. Uh, there's also on Saturday a West Papuan fundraiser, 1pm Underground Car Park, 44 Harmsworth Street in Collingwood. On Tuesday, March the 17th, there's a public meeting, Existence as Resistance. How does our identity shape our daily lives and ultimately our politics? How do questions of race and gender inform our ideas about justice, equality and solidarity? And that's at 6.15 at the Wheeler Centre, 176 Lonsdale Street. On Tuesday, March the 17th, there is also going to be a public um, meeting um, titled Capitalism and Violence Against Women, um, the new resistance organised by Green left and socialist alliance um, and it's going to be a public meeting that explores and um, it's going to be have a panel of speakers that's going to be speaking out about the wave of kind of global resistance um, uh, for women's rights um, against uh, such as you know um, the struggle in Chile uh, the struggles that migrant women face and also the the systematic factors behind um, violence against women and sexism so that's going to be happening on Tuesday March the 17th at 6 30 p.m at um, the resistance center level 5 5407 Swanson Street in the city. Excellent. Uh, on Sunday, March the 22nd, uh, Music Heavy Sunday at Last Chance, which is at 6pm, the Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar, 238 Victoria Street in the city. 
Friday, April the 3rd to Sunday, May the 24th, there's an exhibition, The Entrance to Paradise Lies at Your Mother's Hands. Lara Chalmers explores contemporary Australian and global society and current political issues such as colonialism, refugees, racism, otherness, stigma, language, Islamophobia, terrorism and power relations within society. And that's at the Gertrude Contemporary at 21 to 31 High Street in Preston South. And lastly, Saturday, April the 4th, uh, there's a conference, The Kurdish Freedom Struggle and the Ideas of Abdullah Okalan. And that's at 10.30am to 5.30pm at the Multicultural Hub, which is in 506 Elizabeth Street in the city. Uh, on just the last event, Sunday, April the 5th, is going to be the annual Palm Sunday Rally, Walk for Ooh, Justice yes, Refugees, um, which is going to be happening at 2pm at the State Library. It happens pretty much every year and always attracts up to 10,000 to 20,000 people. I um, highly encourage you to be part of it. And I think, um, yeah, the refugee rights campaigning still um, needs to be stepped up, even though there hasn't been much happening on this on this score. Um, offshore detention still, still happening, yep. and we still have to keep fighting for their rights until um, we can bring them here or c- at least c- close down the camps. Mm. All right, I'm just gonna I'll play a quick few announcements, and we might move on to our second and last interview from the program with Coral Winter. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au. Or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Okay, so this is Shebop. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. All right, on the line, um, we have our second and last interview for the program. Um, 
Cole Winter. Um, Cole Winter is a scientist, um, a member of Socialist Alliance, um, and has also been a regular contrib- contributor to Green Left. Um, and so we're going to be having it on the line to talk about the sort of a bit about the political kind of response to the whole coronavirus sort of outbreak um, and the sort of hysteria, some of the hysteria that has also caused. So, um, yeah, good morning, Coral. Oh, good morning, Jacob. All right, so I'm going to pass it on to Megan because Megan wanted to ask the questions. Yes, um, this is a particular interest of particular interest to me. Coral, welcome to the show. Can you give us a little bit of a background about uh, the coronavirus pandemic and how it has affected our community? Well, the background is it started in a market in Wuhan in China, which sold fish, uh, meat and chicken, but also live animals. And so the thinking at the moment is that the virus spread from bats, which is a particular delicacy in uh, many countries in China and Indonesia, um, bat meat. Um, So it spread from that to maybe pigs and then um, who ate the feces or excreta from the bats and then um, into pigs and then jumped into humans. Mm. So, um, and the background is so that they're, at the moment we've, I think they've got uh, 89,000 people have been um, tested for COVID-19 virus and there's been a death rate of 3,000 people. So that's a fatality rate of only 3%. Mm. So, and the rate, but the rate outside of China is only 0.6%. So I think there's just been this massive hysteria over, uh, over this virus. Mm. And what about our government's response and how practical are their measures as opposed to doing something that looks like they're doing something? Well, look, I really think that the Marathon governments have used uh, COVID-19 to sort of cover up for their errors and mistakes and to just shift the um, conversation from their failures to to the to the virus. Um, but, you know, Morrison failed over the fires. He did. Um, he, he, it was a mm. terrible response. What what he what did? You know what he did? Um, he didn't call in the army to very late, and you know, there's no help and support. And now the money flowing to the um, victims of the fires is, is, is bureaucratically tied up. And so there's also the sports rort. There's also, people may have forgotten this, about the ad they put on television during the fires crisis, which was an ad to fund the Liberal Party and not an ad and not some money to go to the victims. So he's covering all that and he's blustering and... Um, on radio and TV the whole time about the coronavirus and what they're doing. And it's very easy for them to do uh, what they're doing over the virus. They've just um, locked us down, you know, and just used border control. They've now banned um, flights from Iran, uh, China, of course, and uh, South Korea. So I just think it's a total cover-up, you know. And I think last night with the um, TV program um, on ABC... Um, you know, he's blustered and um, getting upset about being questioned over uh, his, his failures over, over the sports rorts. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a way of, um, you know, confusing the, the population um, about the whole issue. You know, it's been a terrible education process. You know, people don't realise 80% of those who get the virus, um, who, who are tested positive for the virus, have no symptoms. 
and only um, it, it was only had 55 cases in Australia in the last two months, over the last two months, and only two deaths, and those have been elderly people, and it's mainly the elderly people who are um, who, who who are affected by this because of other complications they have maybe have other comorbidities. Mm. So I think, you know, that's the situation. Uh, you know, just to compare it with Spain, I spoke to a medical friend in Spain and she said she was very happy with what the Spanish government has done. They've carried out an education campaign about this virus. Uh, they haven't even banned flights from North Italy, in which they're so close to Italy than, than we are. And... Um, have really educated people about the situation, and so, so, the, so you know, compare that with what's happened here. There's been this massive um, uh, buying up of toilet paper, for goodness' sake. Well, I was going to say we were um, going to discuss that. <laughs> oh yeah. right. Well, um, yeah. So, so I think the government, the government response is just making up. It's a whole political response. It's not yeah, a, it's rational, not a rational, logical response, response yeah. to to the. Um, medical situation we face. I definitely feel that our government has basically, they're wanting to take a strong, what what is perceived as a strong stance, but not really listening to uh, epidemiologists or scientists in regards to what actually works. And just to give a a bit of an idea, I mean, uh, if we have a look at the flu virus as compared to the coronavirus, the coronavirus, yes, it's more infectious. uh, And, you know, there have been, there's probably a higher death rate than the flu. However, the flu infects way more people and therefore as a consequence there's way more deaths from the flu every single year than there is from this this you know coronavirus outbreak and I'm just wanting to sort of have a discussion with you. I mean, uh, we, we've all seen, you know, we've all gone to the supermarkets and we've seen these absolutely empty shelves where the toilet paper usually is. Um, I, just as an example, um, there, you know, somebody, I, I, I went there and had a look and went, oh, I just need a, you know, a, a couple of rolls of toilet paper. I can't get them at all. Um, but there was a, a man there who actually needed, that he just needed to grab, a, you know, a, a pack of rolls and there was absolutely nothing. I mean, what do people do? You know, when they have mobility issues, when they're elderly and they don't get out to the shops often, or you know, when they're financially cash strapped, and um, you know, so traveling to different supermarkets is actually quite onerous for them. I mean, how has this impacted society? This panic buying, and you know, what can we do a- as a consequence? Well, you know, the, the government has created this panic, and to some extent, you know, I think what's also happened is that it's linked up with the racism that's inherent in, in Australian society. And mm, I think yeah. anyone with sort of Asian-looking features is being blamed for this crisis. So I think Asians feel really vulnerable and really under the gun. Yes. And maybe it's many of them who have gone to um, buy up the toilet paper because they think they're going to be um, locked up in their homes for, for a couple of weeks. That's a you know, good point. I think that's part of the problem um, that that um, Asian people feel that they could any any moment, you know, all told to stay home and and not leave the house for two weeks just in case. So it's you've got to blame the government and the media that have pushed this because oh, yes. it's on every day, you know, every hour the number of cases might have, might have gone up by one or two over the whole of Australia. You know, this reported cases, not even sort of an illness. Um, uh, positive test. So, um, so, and the situation is yeah, really dire for 
I've just you know been reading about it. So people with autism or you know children with autism, they only like particular brands of food, so mm. they're suffering. People with disabilities, as you mentioned, who who can't get out very often. Um, poor people who haven't got the uh, that amount of cash to buy up all these products. It's just um, a ridiculous, insane response, but but caused mm. by the media and the government. It, and they're, yeah. they're saying they're saying don't panic. But, of course, when you say that, people panic. That's um, right. Government, mis- government and media mismanagement of the whole thing. Yeah. Yes, I, I, absolutely. I mean, just look at the figures. Two deaths in the, in the whole of Australia over the last three months. Every year there's 3,500 deaths from um, influenza, mm. the common cold. There's 3,000 suicides that happen every year. There's a woman killed every week by her partner, and that figure mm. has increased. And there's also um, a, a road death to 1,100 a, a year. So, I mean, this is compared with two deaths and an elderly, two elderly people. I'm, I mean, I'm not dismissing the, you know, that, that situation, but one of them had come from the, that Princess cruise ship in Japan. Australia was on it, and he was 78 years old, and the other person was 94 years old. Mm. in a nursing home. They've now closed down um, Epping School in Sydney because a boy was found um, with a positive test. Yeah. You know, it is just just a a political cover-up, you know. And uh, and, uh, and on top of this, see, they're going to destroy the tourist industry. The the people who are relying in the countryside on tourism after these massive fires are now hit with another blow. Yeah. And this is a you know an indirect problem of of the government's over the top response. The tourists, um, the the bookings for tourism in Australia, I mean people coming down, are now down by fifty six percent. Well, that's going to really slow the recovery of those um, the tourist industry in in the countryside on our mm-hmm. south coast and and you know in Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. I mean, so this is. So Morrison doesn't, and his government don't care about the, um, the 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 effects of this campaign to to save his own political skin. Mm. It's going to really badly affect the tourist industry and the education industry. There's a hundred thousand mm. uh, uh, Chinese students who have enrolled in Australian universities. Twenty percent, twenty thousand of those are considering going to um, either Britain or Canada because Australia has. Um, banned, you know, the uh, flights from China coming mm. into Australia. So he, he doesn't care about the destruction of the economy um, to the the, uh, the Australian universities and and the high schools um, and the tourist industry in this um, um, line he has taken the, 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 in, in the way he's covered this um, COVID nineteen virus panic. Absolutely. I mean, it is important to stress that the measures that the government has, the Australian government has taken are over the top and not actually supported by WHO data. Uh, it's not a logical, rational response. It is literally just for the optics and to be seen as uh, taking a strong response um, to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, however, 
you know, as you said, people here in Australia and and also overseas students are being affected by these over-the-top irrational responses. And we have had this racist response um, to anyone who is of Asian ethnicity. And it's not a logical, rational response. I mean, it's just someone of Asian Asian ethnicity. Uh, These people are being targeted, even if they haven't been to uh, China. You know, they they might have lived there, been born here and and lived here their entire lives. But because of the way they look, they're being targeted. And, um, you know, we're hearing a lot of reports of, um, you know, Asian restaurants being quite quiet. I know one prominent um, Asian restaurant here in Melbourne had to close down as a consequence. Um, these are the sorts of things that are brought on by fear that's not being managed, um, that in fact is being stoked by the media and by the government. Uh, what, can, what can we as individuals do? How, how do we get the message through that this needs to have a logical, rational response and this panic buying and this panic reaction needs to stop? Oh, I think maybe for one we can stop wearing masks because they do nothing mm. to um, to stop you getting the virus. You know, the, the virus is tiny, tiny, tiny. It's not even the size of a normal cell. So any of the, the, the masks, um, will not stop the virus penetrating, you know, for, um, through the through the fabric of the mask. I mean, and that means that there's no mask available for health workers who really need to to wear them. Mm. I mean, if people who do have um, ha- have been tested positive, they should wear a mask to stop any drops uh, or, or, or from sneezing or coughing, you know, um, uh, being sort of pa- passing into the general. Um, public areas but mm. you know that that's one thing that should happen um so and you know it just increases the panic um and so that's that's another consequence of what's happened i mean i think uh, look what's the virus survives for 48 hours on um sort of banisters of um escalators and stairs and in public places or anywhere so people should be Wash their hands. You know, not, probably not stop touching any banisters or, mm. or um, staircases uh, or escalators. And to um, refrain from touching their face, those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, stop yep. touching their face, their nose, or their eyes, and wash their hands with hot water. I mean, there's also mm. a run on sanitizers. That's crazy. Just use a little yep. bit of soap and hot water. That's all you have to do um, to to stop any sort of infection from from, from the virus. Worryingly, um, Warner and Webster, which is a large uh, supplier of hospitals and clinics, I I work in a a clinic, Um, Warner and Webster have run out of all of these sorts of things, hand sanitizers, um, surface sanitizers, etc. And it's not just one brand, it's across the board, these sorts of things. And this is the largest, one of the largest um, suppliers of hospitals, and they've run out of these things, which is quite worrying, unfortunately, because it seems that everyone has bought up and, you know, and, and they're on back order at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, this is also another result of it. If everyone has ordered these sorts of things and the hospital cannot get these uh, sorts of things, then we have a huge potential to have, um, you know, outbreaks not being properly managed by hospitals because their supplies are be- have been interrupted as well. Yeah. Yes, hospital workers and the doctors who need the um, materials. But, but apparently the government has held on to 2 million face masks and won't release them. Mm, I mean, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, they should there should be a priority on uh, in the nursing homes where the elderly are most at risk and in the hospitals for these materials mm. to be released to them. You know, it, it is. Um, you know, I just think it's so badly been so badly handled by the government. Absolutely. Uh, imagine if there yeah. was a real threat. 
um, from a virus um, caused by mainly climate change, um, which was very virulent. I mean, this this virus is um, a massive high infectious rate, but it's not a virulent virus. Maybe mm-hmm. if there was something like that, we would be um, in a, a terrible situation. Absolutely. As, as you know, if you see what the, you know what the government has done so far. Now, Coral, um, we're just winding up the interview. Is there anything that you'd like to say before we finish? Well, I'd just like to say that the Chinese government, I mean, I'm not a great supporter of the Chinese government and the lack of, a lack of democracy, but they have done everything, and none of that is reported in the media. They have built two hospitals with a 1,000 beds each. They have you know, closed down the whole city of Wuhan with 60 million people for, for over a month. You know, the rate is now dropping in um, China, from, um, I think it was 189 uh, weeks ago to down to, to 50, much, you know, or 20, mm. uh, 20 plus, 20, much less. They've, they have not been um, helped by uh, our government to, to support their, their, what they've been doing. They released the sequence, the DNA sequence of the virus um, as soon as they called on January mm. 1 so that everybody else around the, in the rest of the world could... Um, uh, work could be able, were able to develop tests for it as rapidly as possible, which they hadn't done with the SARS epidemic, and they mm. learned from that. They have um, washed all their um, cash notes um, with heat or, or and sterilised them so that that would be less trans, trans um, emission through handling money. So mm. they've done everything possible, and and they should be applauded for what they've done to prevent the spread of this. Um, virus and and none of that is reported in the media. Uh, um, we'll have to end it um, there. Um, yes. Thank you very much, Coral. <laughs> okay. Appreciated. Thank you. Right. And um, right, thanks. thanks, listeners, can tune in to Beyond Zero Emissions now and have a great weekend. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, thanks, all listeners. We'll see you all next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Oh!